1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Judges, Israel again follows after other gods and comes under the harsh oppression of the Midianites. Then, when things are really bad, they finally cry out to the Lord again. We'll pick it up in Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The title of the message is, God Knows What He's Doing. All right, Judges chapter
2: 6. Judges chapter 6. You ever have like scriptures that the Lord kind of uses to get your attention? Like specific ones? Like Peter. Peter wasn't scripture, but it was the number three. And anytime something happens three times, Peter's like, okay, Lord, what am I not getting here? Gideon's kind of like that for me. Anytime the Lord has someone come to me and say, hey, I was learning in Gideon the other day, my ears kind of perk up because I know I've probably been missing something lately and God really needs me to hear something. Because the story of Gideon, it ministers a lot to me personally. In chapter 6 here, we now enter the fourth cycle in the book of Judges. And while most of the accounts of these cycles they have given us a small look into the lives of the judges who rescued Israel during them. This next account is going to give us an intimate look into the next judge, Gideon. And uh, Gideon is an unlikely judge. He's, he's similar to Moses in a sense where if you grab Moses before he leaves Egypt, he looks like the perfect person to lead Israel free, right? But then when you find him in the desert 40 years later, he's the most unlikely person in the world, and himself even feeling that way. You know, that why, would I, why would you pick me? And uh, and so, you know, Gideon is an unlikely judge, but it's not because of how he performs as a judge, uh, but rather it's because, similar to Moses in that 40 years later time of his life, it's because Gideon is unwilling to believe God knows what he's doing. He's unwilling. And it's not a matter of, well, this is hard to believe. He's just unwilling to believe that God knows what he's doing. You ever struggled with that? Anybody here? I relate to that. Because I want to know. You know, inquiring minds want to know. I always want to know. I want to know the details. I am a person who the devil's in the details. I want to know all the details so the devil can never get me. So I want to know everything, you know. And, and so I'm a consummate researcher. I'm a consummate, I'm, I'm going to, you know, do everything I got to do to find out everything I got to find out so I'm fully prepared for whatever it is I'm entering into. Well, Gideon's story teaches us that God knows exactly what he's doing whether we have all the details or not. And therefore, he is worthy of our trust. So chapter 6, we begin in verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because the Midianites of the Midianites, the children of Israel, made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. So it was, when Israel had sown, that the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites, and the children of the east, even they came up against them. And they had camped against them, and destroyed the increase of the earth, till you come unto Gaza, and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude. For both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. So we enter now into this fourth cycle, and it mentions, like it does every time, and the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, verse 10 tells us that their evil they did was they went back into idolatry. And you kind of think to yourself, you go, again? Yes, again. And you know what's crazy is that 40 years of blessing under Deborah and Barak quickly change to God's discipline once Deborah and Barak were gone. Remember, the whole theme of the book of Judges is why we need the King of Kings, right? Because every man does that which is right in his own eyes. This is why we need the King of Kings, because even though God raises up good people like Deborah and Barak, good people, even though they are a blessing, they have failings and they don't hold our hearts forever, no matter how good they may be. Only Jesus can keep me close to the Father because he never fails and he never goes away. He's a high priest forever. He doesn't need to be replaced. And that's why he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. Now, as in the past, when Israel sinned, God has to discipline them, and he does. It says, And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Now, the last judgment that Israel experienced was from the Canaanites inside Israel's borders. These Midianites, they are from outside Israel's borders. So it's like we're alternating where the judgment comes from outside, inside, outside, inside. Now we're back to outside again. Now, Israel had problems with the Midianites before they entered the promised land. If you remember, Moses defeated the Midianites after the whole fiasco with Balaam, the seer. He defeated the Midianites and the Moabites. So there's not a lot of love between these two groups of people, between Israel and Midian. And so they come up and the Lord delivered them into the hands of Midian for seven years. Now, that's a much shorter time of oppression than God's other judgments in the book of Judges. But this one, while it was shorter, was far more severe. I don't think they could have lasted much longer. For it says in verse 2 that the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. The word there, to prevail, it means to conquer. This wasn't just an issue where they bested Israel on the field of battle and they, they, held, they made them their slaves or they controlled the economy This was a situation where they absolutely whooped Israel to the point where they were now a conquered people. Now what's interesting is we have no details of the battle except that Israel was so soundly defeated that they could offer no further resistance. And the thing is, the Midianites, they were not content to rule from the other side of the river like the Moabites had been under Ehud. They plundered Israel and drove them from their homes. For it says, because the Midianites, the children of Israel, made them the dens. made Had to find shelter in the mountains and in caves or in strongholds. In the hill country, where the camels wouldn't help out, the Midianites. In the caves or in strongholds, which means mountain fortresses. In other words, every village was emptied any exposed city was emptied. The only safe place was behind a wall or in a remote location in the hill country. That was it. Now, you might be tempted to think, that doesn't sound so bad. I like big walls and quiet mountains. That's great, but how do you plan to eat? How do you plan to survive? You can't bring your animals with you into those shelters, nor can you plant crops in the mountains. If you go to Israel with us, you're going to see a lot of brown mountains in this region where we go, and it's desert. Life was hard, and any attempt to scrape out a way to live was terrifying, because look at verse 3. And so it was that when Israel had sown, that the Midianites came up. So anytime they tried to plant food in the more fertile areas down in the valleys, it says that the Midianites came up, but it wasn't just them. The Amalekites came too, and the children of the east, even they came up against them. So the Midianites weren't alone in these attacks. The Amalekites are back again. They were a problem before. And this time, the Bedouin Ishmaelites join in too. Now, it's interesting because the Midianites are descendants of Abraham through Keturah. The Amalekites are descendants of Esau. And the children of the east are descendants of Abraham through Ishmael. This is a whole heap of family hatred coming at Israel here, all right? There's a whole lot of centuries of bitterness at not being the chosen family. And so with the chosen nation down, they intend to keep them down. Verse 4. And they encamped against them. They didn't just make forays in. They set up camp in, the, in their homes. And they destroyed everything they planted, the increase of the earth. And it says, until you come to Gaza. And they left no sustenance for Israel. No planted crops. No, not even sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. Why? They didn't need them. For they came up with their own cattle. And their tents, and they came up as grasshoppers for multitude, before both they and their camels were without number. For they entered into the land not just to conquer it, but to destroy it. Now the Midianites, they had their lands to the south and east of Moab and Ammon, far away from Israel, and but the Moabites and the Ammonites had been weakened by Israel under Judge Ehud, and so this paved the way for them to drive straight through into Israel. The other two groups are, they don't have a homeland. They're nomadic. The Amalekites never had a place where they settled down. They were always on the move. The Ishmaelites are the same way. They were nomadic, always on the move. So they were used to settling down at different spots. Well, the Midianites decide they will join in that way of life during the harvest season to create serious hardships for Israel. And so they create this massive, tense city on Israeli lands, and the results are devastating. They destroy everything all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, all the way to Gaza. Now, no enemy had ever pressed that far into Israel. In the past, when we saw these incursions or these rising up to the Canaanites or other groups, it was kind of generalized in a locale, like with Deborah and Barak, it was mostly in the north. Judah and Simeon weren't really affected by any of that. But this is the first attack, the first judgment that God allows that affects the entire nation. And it says that's because their goal was to destroy the land. Not just conquer, not even just to enslave, but to wipe out Israel. Now, is it any wonder that verse 6 says, "And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites? The word "there impoverished means to not have enough goods for normal life. You know, they were barely surviving. Now, it might be tempting to think, well, God, that's a bit harsh, a bit too harsh. I mean, surely you don't want your people wiped out. It's not too harsh. And here's why. Let me tell you a story. My oldest son who's here, and I can pick on him since he's here. He had a period where grades were not exactly up to our expectations. And uh, this is when he was much younger. And and so we kept having these kind of smaller disciplines and stuff. And finally, I told him, I said, if these grades come back again this way, I said, you're going to lose these privileges for the entire summer break. I remember even Bev kind of looked at me and she's like, you can't say it, not mean it. I meant every word of it. And, you know, with all of my kids, there's been times when I've said things like that where, you know, it, I if I said it, I had to follow through with it. By the way, parenting tip, if you ever threaten and don't follow through, you you will fail. You, it'd be better not to threaten than to threaten and not, not follow up with it, okay? You know? So it's important if you're going to say this is the consequence that you, that's the consequence. One of the, one of the things we do when we do parent, parent counseling for, for folks is we explain to them and I say, I'm not here to tell you what your boundaries need to be, but y'all need to figure out what they're going to be. And then together you need to stick to it no matter what. Because what kids need more than anything is to understand where the boundaries are. They need to understand where they are because it's in understanding where they are that they feel safe. They feel loved. So again, I'm not going to tell you what your boundaries need to be, but whatever they are, you need to stick to them. And if you say this is what the consequence is going to be, you need to follow through with it. Now, God warned them exactly what he was going to do if they persisted in their idolatry. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, we see two very interesting things. 28 verse 31, it says this. It says... Your ox shall be slain before your eyes and you shall not eat thereof. Your donkey shall be violently taken away from you before your face and shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given unto your enemies and you shall have none to rescue them. Deuteronomy 28 verse 38 says this, you shall carry much seed out into the field and you shall gather but little in. So these are things that God said, if you persist in your disobedience. If you persist in this, this is what I'm going to do. So it is not too harsh. It is not too harsh. God was keeping his word. Now, we usually don't put those promises up there, right? You know, we say, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, right? Amen. Praise the Lord. You know, we don't usually put up there that if you sow to the wind, you'll reap the whirlwind. Like, I don't usually have that, like on my, you know, like the bathroom wind, you know, you know, you get out of the shower and you're like, oh, he shall finish what he started in me. Amen, you know? We don't usually look up there and go, if you sow to the whirlwind, you'll reap it today, Will. But it's a promise. And God was keeping his word. Now, the goal of that is that God's fulfilled promise of judgment would remind them of his promise to forgive and restore if they repent. It was to be a trigger. Jesus, like when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me from the cross? Why did he do that? You know, certainly it was his emotional experience at that time. God had turned his face because all our sins had been put upon Jesus. He was made to be sin who knew no sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. Yes, But there's another purpose. He's quoting Psalm 22. And when rabbis wanted their congregation to recite the passage of scripture, they would always say the first verse and then look for them to say the rest. Now, why does Jesus go, my God, my God, why does he quote verse one of Psalm 22? Because the rest of the Psalm is a prophecy of the Messiah's crucifixion. So all of them start going, why is he saying Psalm 22? And then they start reading through it in their mind and they go, oh my goodness, for them to realize what's going on. God is being faithful to his word here so that they'll recall and go, I remember some lesson when I was in Sunday school, you know, when I was running around not paying attention half the time about how we would plant stuff and not be able to eat it because God was disciplining us. And then they'd go back and they'd read the law and then in going back and reading the law, they'd find out that God also said, yeah, but if you repent, I'll restore I'll forgive. You know, when we discipline our kids, when we keep to our boundaries and we follow through with our consequences, we're giving them sure things so that they know we mean what we say so that when we sit down with them and go, listen, I don't care what you do, I will always love you. You're my son, you're my daughter. Nothing could change that. They'll believe that too. So it's important that we be consistent. Consistent. God is consistent, so we know we can take Him at His word no matter what. Well, after seven years of trying to do things on their own and going farther away from God, they finally cry out to the Lord. And Israel, the children of Israel, verse 6, cried unto the Lord. Now, God answers, but it's a little bit different this time. And it came to pass when the children of Israel, verse 7, they cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord doesn't raise up a judge right away. It says, The Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all that oppressed you. And I drove them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not. In other words, don't serve, don't reverence, don't worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. The prophet declares two things God's faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness. Why? Why is it necessary for him to do that? Why doesn't God just raise up Gideon first? Because crying unto God for help is one thing, repentance is a different thing. It is possible that the Lord sent prophets at other times, and just not listed here. It's also possible that Israel here in chapter 6 had not repented yet, and that's why God sends a prophet to them this time. Either way, though, these two truths, God's faithfulness and a proper understanding of my unfaithfulness, are important for us to understand so that we can properly respond to God when we're not where we're supposed to be. Now, how was God faithful? Two ways. He rescued them from Egypt, just like he promised, And he brought them into the promised land by giving them victory over the Canaanites, just like he promised. God did every single thing he said he would do. That's the definition of faithfulness, reliability. And that, that reliability, that faithfulness, that never failingness, that should have led to the Israelites' perpetual devotion to God. But they forgot all of it. And so I ask you a question tonight. Do you remember God's faithfulness to you? if you can't be honest with yourself enough to see his past goodness to you, then just remember the cross. Because you're never going to come back to the Lord unless you believe he's faithful. You have to trust in his faithfulness if you're going to change the way you think and the way you live. You have to believe that he's right. You have to believe that he's good. You have to believe that he cares. And you have to believe that he'll do what he says. Now, how is Israel unfaithful? Also two ways. Number one, it says they did not make their relationship with God a priority. He said, I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. That's that's the relationship we have. They did not make that a priority. And then secondly, they worshiped other gods alongside him. He told them to not fear the gods of the Amorites, to not worship them, reverence them, serve them. But they didn't obey him they served other gods worshiped them alongside the Lord and if we're going to come back to the Lord when we're not where we're supposed to be you not know, only understand that he'll take us back that he's faithful and that his ways are best but this that we didn't make our relationship a priority with him and that we've disobeyed him that has to be confessed and turned from if we're going to be a different person it has to There are times when the Lord's dealing with me and I don't want to deal with the Lord on those things. And I think, well, Lord, you know, can't I pray for the peace of Israel? Lord, you know, I I want to lift up all the sick people in my life. You know, Lord, you know, my kids, they need prayer. And the Lord's like, I'd really like to talk to you about the lousy husband you're being right now. Well, we can talk about that like tomorrow, you know, because today I don't feel like being a good husband. There's reasons I've been a lousy husband, Lord, and I'd like to continue for another day at least. And the Lord goes, no, I'm not okay with that. We can't just tiptoe around that and pretend like it's not going on. And maybe you're here tonight, and maybe you struggle with your own cycles as a Christian. Maybe the book of Judges is a good description of your life. If that's true, it's possible that you've never dealt with those two areas. You you know, you've you've never dealt with the issue that your relationship with God isn't a priority in your life, and and you may have other idols that you've dedicated your life to alongside your Christianity. And, and if either of those are, are a part of your life right now, I would urge you and, and encourage you to, to repent. Because these cycles will just repeat themselves. You know, you'll come to church and you'll be all excited and you'll hear a message like, okay, God, yeah, yeah, that's right. I need, to, I need to be sharing my faith and I need to be more faithful at work and whatever. But there's that one thing you won't give to them because... Your relationship with them is just not the priority, and you've got other things that are equally important in your life. You'll never never break the cycle. There has to come a place where we take the idol out and we smash it with a hammer, you know? It's the only option. And until we do, it's going to keep bringing us down. You know, it's funny I almost never know, never, it's never, almost never unknown to me what I need to do. It's not like I'm normally walking around going, God, I just don't know how to get right with you, or God, I just don't know how to fix this part of my life. I know. (laughs) I know. It's just not an attractive option. I remember when I was in Israel a couple years ago, and I was up on, Mount Carmel and hearing the teaching on Elijah taking on the prophets of Baal and how Israel, they need to choose this day and they'll serve. There was no surprises on that hilltop, okay? Like the things that God was speaking to my heart about what needed to be left on that hilltop, it was not a surprise, but it was pure anguish during that entire message (laughs) as I'm wrestling with the Lord. I mean, it would not have shocked me if God had come running out of the monastery over there and tackled me and was rolling on the ground with me because there was mighty wrestlings going on. I knew what I needed to do. I just didn't want to do it. So if you struggle with your own cycles as a Christian, ask yourself that question, is your relationship with God your priority? And do you have other idols that you dedicate your life to alongside your Christianity? Lord, we are so grateful that you know what you're doing. (laughs) You said, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you. What a crazy thought, Lord, that you love us, but you want us. You want us to be a part of your family. You want to use us that you have good plans for us despite the fact that we, we don't deserve that. Thank you for being our shalom, Lord. Thank you for wanting to bless us even after we've just blown it. Thank you for being our peace. Lord, help us to recognize that you're always with us even when we've gone far away. That we might always know that that option's available to draw near to you, no matter where we've been before. Thank you for being our peace, Lord. Help us to stay close, to not wander. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
1: This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com